is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Vaccine mandates have been upheld by courts in different cases recently. Most well-known was when hospital workers in Houston tried to stop one. A judge told them no, but now a judge in New York City has put the mandate on hold for teachers and school staff. Could this be the first mandate to successfully be challenged? The pandemic has led to lots of bad behavior on the airlines, so there's a big push growing to ban people who have been jerks, and the pandemic has made hunger an even bigger problem in the U.S. We start, though, with the New York City schools, the vaccine mandate there. Mark Drager, city councilman, chairs the council's education committee, also used to be a public school teacher. Rob Archer and I were with him, asking what he thinks is next. Well, first, uh, good to be with you. Um, What I'm told is that uh, the case, as mentioned, will be heard Wednesday, but the city is very optimistic that the mandate will be upheld, as in other uh, court decisions uh, that are they're being rendered uh, for other other industries. So, um, but at this moment, um, you know, w- the overwhelming majority of teachers are vaccinated in New York City. The, the, the issue that I'm hearing about is the other positions in schools. You know, it, it's, it takes more than a teacher to operate a school. So, for example, school food workers, school safety agents, that uh, the administration has been less transparent about the number of folks who, are, who have been vaccinated. And so principals at the Sour in New York are very concerned about staffing operations uh, for, for later this weekend to next week. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, they, they have a similar issue with uh, medical workers, you know, uh, being given until the end of the day to get the first COVID vaccine shot or, you know, find uh, new work elsewhere. And even if we wait for the court to uh, uphold this, if it winds up that you got to get rid of a lot of these uh, staffers, that's a, that that support staff, you, you can't really run schools without them if they all wind up getting fired. So is there a contingency plan in place for if the order gets upheld and we lose some workers? And that's a great question. We've been asking for a contingency plan. Uh, the administration here in New York City has been telling us everything is everything is fine, but we know everything is not fine because at this hour, again, principals who I speak to now on a daily basis have not been given any guidance about uh, who will actually serve lunch. Um, also, school cleaners, uh, many of them I'm hearing uh, through reports, again, but the administration has not released any data. Many of them have not been vaccinated as well. So who will actually, you know, maintain buildings, clean, sanitize and so forth. So we really don't have much of a contingency plan other than, you know, just changing things day by day. But at this hour, a number of our schools are very concerned about what operations will look like once the mandate is in full effect. So then, you know, across these industries, is there enough thought put into the idea of what happens when when you're a lawmaker and you say, you know, vax or quit or or get fired? I mean, should there be these testing opt outs? Because the other argument goes that that testing option is just too soft and no one will eventually end up getting vaccinated. They're just going to test out forever. Well, and to be clear, you know, I support, you know, uh, that vaccine mandates here for our schools. The issue, however, is that they didn't consult with uh, stakeholders until much later. And also, I'm not sure who decided to start the mandate in the middle of a school week on a Monday or Tuesday, um, when, <laughs> in fact, they should have probably planned it out for, for a Friday, so to give schools the weekend to adjust accordingly. Um, but there should have been contingency plans, such as, for example, 
We have central staff in our education department. Uh, some are licensed to teach, some, some might not be, but to begin to work with them on how to redeploy them accordingly, that's only being done now, I'm being told, that notices are being sent to central staff that, oh, get ready, we might need you, but uh, they're also represented by unions. And in my conversations with union leaders, no one has been speaking to them about these positions only up until now, when this should have been worked in place before the start of the school year. Well, you know, everything is unprecedented these days. Uh, you know, we, we didn't even foresee before there was a pandemic that uh, some of these questions would come up. You know, people, I think, assumed that, well, if we get a pandemic, they'll invent a vaccine and everybody will line up to take it and everybody want to take it. And, and to be sure, as you say, most of the teachers are vaccinated. And there is a small sub segment of people who are opposed to these vaccinations. And among those who are opposed, who don't want to get vaccinated, what are you hearing are their reasons to be against it? So the reasons vary. Um, there, some folks have been sharing something on social media, which I have found without any merit or substance about how the vaccine may potentially impact fertility. Um, and some teachers worried about the ability to you know, start a family. But there's really been no true merit or substance to this that, that we've been able to find and ascertain. And I've asked our health department repeatedly about this, and they, these things have been debunked, and so there's been no evidence uh, to further that point. There are some folks who, you know, just are opposed to any types of, of vaccination, and again, that's just something that we, we safety of staff and, and students has to be a, a top priority here. So I think that the majority of folks are on board; they get it, um, but it's the other staff that I am greatly worried about in terms of how the schools will be able to function. Some schools, all of their school food workers are not vaccinated. That impacts breakfast, lunch, and so forth. Some school cleaners are not vaccinated. That, that impacts daily sanitizing and, and cleaning operations. So only now at this hour, the administration is kind of trying to scramble to figure out how to make the pieces fit. Uh, but this is still very, very much a fluid situation, but a serious situation because you need to keep kids and staff safe. You know, the vaccine mandate keeps kids and staff safe, but a lack of a plan to implement the mandate without impacting basic operations, that's what makes students and staff less safe. You mentioned unions. What's it like there? Are teachers union leadership? I mean, UTLA is is pro-mandate for the teachers. Are, are, are yours the same? Because sometimes, you know, if you're trying to, and if, if you're pro-vaccine mandate, you can use that to kind of lean on people. You don't want to be the one guy fighting the mandate when the rest of the union is not. Uh, it's my understanding that the majority of union membership that I've been speaking with, they support a mandate. However, the unions have been uh, trying to deal, work with the administration on the issue of what what exemptions might look like for staff that might have allergic reaction or something, uh, you know, valid, uh, not just a made up, uh, you know, excuse and reason. And the administration didn't want to discuss that, so that, that's that's why they were forced to go into arbitration. And there's still it's still a holding pattern on that. But for the most part. Uh, the, the teachers union, the principals union, they, they've actually been encouraging the, the members to get vaccinated, um, but they're still waiting to, to iron out those rare exceptions and accommodations. Mark Traeger, New York City Councilman, chairs the council's education committee, himself a former public school teacher. Mark, thanks for talking to us. 
So we've seen the videos, all the incidents of people behaving badly on the airplanes, yelling at people, not wearing masks, fighting with the crew members. A recent wave of awful behavior on flights has Delta and flight attendants calling on airlines and Homeland Security to permanently ban people who've disrupted flights and attacked the crew members. Delta says, let's all share the lists of people together that people we keep tabs on saying you can't come back to us so you can't fly anywhere else either. Brent Snyder is author of the Cranky Flyer blog, director of the Cranky Concierge Air Travel Service. Rob and I asked him why they didn't have a no-jerk-fly list before all this. That's a, that's a good question. Uh, well, thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, you know, the, the way that this works, the airlines like to do things independently. They don't all necessarily have the same rules. If the government wanted to create a national no-jerk list... Uh, then the airlines probably would have participated. But since they're doing it on their own, you know, they're a little more hesitant to uh, to try and and collaborate on that. But now that the numbers have gone up so much since the uh, pandemic, uh, that's probably why there's more of a catalyst at this point. Yeah. And the problem, just to be crystal clear for everybody, is let's say I I'm I punch somebody and I shouldn't. Uh, and I get, Again? I get banned on, thank you, <laughs> and I get banned on Delta, but I still need to go someplace. I can just hop over to American and they don't know that I did that on the other guys. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you could just walk right onto the other side of the airport if you want. But the the thing about that is that it's also very subjective. You know, if an airline says, hey, you did this, this is bad, we don't want you to do it. Is that something they're now going to have to tell the other airlines? Well, this is what they did. So you can decide if you want to ban them or not. And it, it starts to get weird with privacy and, and how much you have to disclose, things like that. Yeah, I was going to say, if if, if they are going to do something like this, they, they need to come up with some definitions of what constitutes this kind of behavior. And it, and it does need to be extreme because we've all been around people who were difficult and complained a lot. And you, and you don't want to get into a case where you're where you're uh, being tyrannical over just somebody's normal bad behavior. Like, I don't like my drink and you're not serving me fast enough. I mean, yeah, that can be annoying, but that's that's not uh, that's not a severe disruption. Uh, do you think if they do this, they will look at it like maybe put the limit at like if you force the plane to have to divert somewhere and land so that you could be taken off, you're you're definitely a bad guy and you don't get to fly versus somebody who's just maybe not fun to be around? Well, if, frankly, even that is still subjective. You know, if anyone it, it's up to the pilots in command, if they want to divert the aircraft because they think there's a threat and they're not interacting with the person, they're getting that from the flight attendants that are talking to them if there's an issue. You know, they're they're supposed to be staying in the cockpit behind the closed door. So even that can be a challenge. So it's hard to to know exactly how you draw that line. Now, look, if you're going to go punch a guy again, apparently again, yeah, uh, Mike. <laughs> then I punched, you know, no that, one. <laughs> that, I guess the one thing that's good about this is that or bad about this, depending on your viewpoint, is that there are a lot of cell phone cameras these days. And so if somebody does something that is truly terrible, it'll probably be captured on on camera uh, and people will be able to judge that based on what they see. But without question, there needs to be a standard in place and how you get to that point that this is where it makes more sense for the government to probably take the lead. But I'm guessing Delta's sick of waiting for the government to do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, no question. We've seen more of it. And, and we had the flight attendants testifying at Congress the other day about more of them getting assaulted. We've seen more people duct taped to seats. We've seen more yelling. What is it about now that is making people 
do this. And, and there's there's you know there's different levels as we've said. There's people who are off the deep end trying to open the doors and deploy the slide, and then there's people just snapping at other people. But is it something about going into that tube and getting enclosed? Is it a bunch of drunk people like like some of the flight attendants are saying? Uh, it's probably a mix of everything is, is the reality. But some of it is is very clearly there's just more stress in the world with the pandemic. People are not as used to interacting with other people, especially in small spaces, which is a weird thing to say, but it's true. And so you get people together and, and they're just in a different headspace than maybe they've been in the past. And then when you throw on top some of these some of these things like the mask requirements, which are still required on airplanes, uh, no matter where you are, doesn't matter what the state wants that you're in, you know, you end up getting some people that refuse to do that and think that it's uh, some conspiracy theory and they're implanting 5G chips in your head or whatever it might be. Again, uh, <laughs> again, <laughs> you and the agains, there's so many of these things. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so I, I think, you know, that is is one of the things that's just adding to it, but it's also just general stress, and it's it's tough um, for for people to try and re-enter society. Brett Snyder, author of the Cranky Flyer blog, director of the Cranky Concierge Air Travel Service. Short break, and then the pandemic is bringing new attention to an old problem. Food insecurity, big problem before the pandemic, got even worse during it. Food pantries struggled to keep up with demand after people lost their jobs. Government tried to help with extra unemployment benefits and expanded child tax credit payments. KYW's Matt Leon talked to Fred Wozniak, president and CEO of the Food Bank of South Jersey, about whether these things have been helping. We have come down from the height of COVID from 2020. Uh, but still, we are serving 20, 25% higher than we were in 2019. Now, you know, we hit record distributions in 2020, 22.5 million pounds of food. That's over 18 million meals. Um, and that's a 45% increase over the year before. So we've come down about 20%. And as you just stated, with the uh, benefits, unemployment benefits ending, uh, we're going to start seeing a rise um, in need uh, very soon. Is that something, you know, as you look at the landscape and realize that's happening, uh, that you guys have kind of braced for and kind of adjusted uh, the asks for and stuff like that, that, you know, this this could be something that we're going to yes. need to deal with? Yes. And uh, one, uh, you know, we are convinced we're still not out of COVID. So, you know, this, this, this variant and everything along with that. Now, granted, uh, you know, there are vaccinations and it is a safer environment. Uh, but knowing that the stimulus, the benefits for unemployment, all that was going to come, the moratoriums on uh, rent, uh, electricity, you know, that has all come to a head. And so we've been preparing and we've been stockpiling and, and doing our effort and community support to be ready for what we're calling a, a tidal wave. We're not sure how large the tidal wave will be, but we know that it's uh, going to increase in the coming weeks. And again, we call this harvest season. You know, um, it's the harvest season where the weather starts getting colder and, you know, people's hearts come out. Uh, so we anticipate our community support will continue. Uh, but also, uh, it's a time of year, um, especially now with all these uh, benefits ending, uh, we're going to see an increase. So we are ready for that. To that point, 
when you're kind of looking at the big picture, are you operating on a couple of tracks? There's the right now what's in front of us track, but also to that point, we think life could change for a lot of people because these programs have gone away. So we have to prepare for greater need possibility. And how do you balance those two discussions? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, You know, food insecurity was in a pandemic even before March 12th, 2020. In America, under the Feeding America network of 200 food banks, March 11th, March 12th of 2020, uh, we were serving 42 million food insecure individuals. Uh, Numbers have just come out uh, that this network served uh, just a little over 60 million people. Uh, this is the greatest event since the Great Depression. Pre-pandemic numbers of 2008 recession took 10 years to get back to. Uh, so we know we are in this for the long haul. So it's not just the immediate. You know, if we look at our three pillars that we work with in our mission, uh, that we want to we make sure we provide food. We provide education uh, through nutritious uh, education programs. Um, And then the third pillar, which is uh, very important to us moving forward, uh, is the sustainability part of our mission. And has the, you know, to your point of it, it took 10 years to get back from the Great Recession. I mean, has your outlook on sustainability, what it's going to take, has that changed basically forever? Like when you're problem solving like what we need now we need to look at it differently for the not just the rest of this year but as we're projecting out for the foreseeable future yeah that's um you know that's a sustainability it's always been with our food bank mission for um the 36 years uh but the pandemic has helped us to dive deeper and what does that really mean for the future? Um, and when you think about uh, sustainability, you know, how can we help the people in line? How can we raise them up by helping them in different ways? And when you think about that sustainability, you know, we have to think about and address, address the root causes of hunger. And man, hunger is not the problem, it's poverty. And the systemic issues of racism that lead uh, to that poverty. So, you know, food is everywhere, uh, but, you know, the causes, uh, the root causes of hunger are many, affordable housing, chronic health issues, access to healthcare, unemployment, low wages, education. We saw many of these areas affected by the pandemic. Um, So, you know, uh, our organization, our food bank is, uh, you know, we've been alleviating hunger for the last 36 years as a food resource to individuals. So if they have to pay rent, well, they know they had food from the food bank. And if they have to pay uh, for electricity or children's clothing, they know they had food to go to for the food bank. But we have to get deeper than that. You know, uh, we're not only feeding the line, shortening the line, uh, you know, through collective effort and partnerships, we want to end the line. I'm curious. We talk about the benefits that have expired, that expanded child tax credit has been in effect for a few months. And I'm curious, people you talk to uh, that you're helping, 
is that having an impact in a good way? Are you getting feedback from people that, because that's something that's supposed to go away at the end of the year. And as of right now is scheduled to, I know there's talk of expanding it in uh, legislation that is being kicked around by right now, but what we know, what's, you know, what's on the calendar right now. Uh, I guess my question is, do you get feedback from people that that's helping and making a difference? And what concern, if that does go away at the end of the year, in the heart of winter, uh, do you have as far as what that's going to do to the need? Yeah, uh, we're still in, I feel, we feel we're in, in, still in an ambiguous uh, climate. Yes, the child tax credit has helped. Again, uh, you know, with the vaccinations, um, the, the support from our, uh, our government, state and federal, the child tax credit, that's where we have seen a dip uh, uh, in, our, in our outreach. So again, 45% increase um, from 2020 to 2019. Right now we're running about 20, 25%. So, you know, these benefits um, are helping. Uh, and the other, the other benefit, aside from the tax credit, you know, one of the, the, the greatest formulas uh, from our government is the SNAP uh, benefit. Uh, and what, what Feeding America has calculated for every one meal we give out for Feeding America, uh, $1 SNAP benefit brings nine meals. Um, so that is uh, one of the, the best benefits right now just to help us uh, re- reduce the people in line. And, uh, but, you know, nothing lasts forever. So, uh, you know, we know the tax credit's going to end. Uh, but the other thing is, you know, the unemployment shortage, that this, the crisis, you know, people just haven't gone to work because some of these benefits have really uh, supported uh, keeping people in health and safety, a safe environment, um, you know, with the help uh, cover the unemployment due to the shutdown. But I think we feel that there's going to be uh, a bottleneck of people when these benefits run out. Well, you know what? I'm going to have to go out and get a job. Uh, but it's going to take some time for pe- people to get settled back in. Plus, people are changing jobs, too. You know, COVID has brought a whole different light of, uh, of personal purpose. And uh, so all these things are factored in that, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to see uh, this little tidal wave coming up in the, in the future. If you are eligible for a booster shot in the U.S., a Pfizer shot, and you're thinking, I wonder if there will be enough. Do I need to go now? U.S. health officials say they're confident there will be enough for every American who qualifies. Spike in demand is expected after the endorsement of the boosters by the CDC for Americans 65 and older and then the other subgroups. CDC says younger people at higher risk because of the health conditions, the jobs also can qualify. However, more than 70 million Americans remain unvaccinated, and the health officials are always saying getting them their first and second shots, that's the real important thing. You can find this Odyssey original and the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.